Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. Well, week one of the NFL is in the books. We'll break everything down from that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 83 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Friday nights, both on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text in to the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The Browns have been a hapless franchise since returning back to Cleveland and the National Football League in 1999, and while a team can only go up from here, it will still be quite a long time before this horrendous period goes on the back burner. For example, things have been so bad in Cleveland that the winningest quarterback at their home stadium doesn't even play for the Browns. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. The Cleveland Browns haven't had much to celebrate in the past two decades, to say the least. Having not made the playoffs since a wildcard appearance in 2002, and having not won a playoff game since a wildcard victory in 1994. The team has also been without a star player to move the needle for just as long, with a running back who hasn't played since 1966, and an offensive lineman as the current faces of the franchise. Nothing circles the wagons quite like the quarterback position for the Cleveland Browns, as the team has employed 27 players at the game's most important position since returning to the NFL in 1999. To say the Browns have developed a swing and a miss culture at the quarterback position is an understatement, with perhaps the most jarring omission made in 2004. When the Browns watched Eli Manning and Phillip Rivers get drafted at 1-4, before settling on tight end Kellen Winslow II with the sixth pick. Though Winslow would help the Browns reach double-digit wins in the 2007 season for the first time since 1994, his career in Cleveland never fully blossomed with just one 1,000-yard receiving season, and he was traded the following year. Five picks later in that 2004 draft, the Pittsburgh Steelers drafted Ohio native Ben Roethlisberger, who has since led the Steelers to two Super Bowl championships. Big Ben also added an interesting accomplishment to his resume this past Sunday, as he became the winningest quarterback at Cleveland's now first energy stadium since 1999 despite never playing a snap for the Browns. With Pittsburgh's 21-18 win over Cleveland in the season opener, Roethlisberger improved his record to 22-2 against the Browns, with 11 of those wins coming in Cleveland. 
Those two losses also came in Cleveland at the hands of the great Brady Quinn and Brian Hoyer. Derek Anderson, who played for the Browns from 2005 to 2009, and yes, last led the Browns to a winning record in that 2007 season, now trails Big Ben for wins in Cleveland with 10. And while the terrible Browns team certainly have contributed to Roethlisberger's success, Cleveland's decision to pass on him in 2004 still serves as added motivation. As noted before a matchup last year, when Big Ben said, quote, I thought I did a really good job, but I guess not, while referencing the private workout he had with the team before the draft. He went on to say in an interview with the ESPN, quote, Two quarterbacks had already been picked, so as a competitor, I felt underestimated. When Cleveland passed on me, technically my hometown team, that was it. I couldn't wait to have a team and play the Browns at some point. Funny how it works out, I'd go to Pittsburgh and play them twice a year. On Sunday, Big Ben also surpassed Fran Tarkenton for the ninth most passing yards in NFL history. Since 2004, Roethlisberger has traveled to Cleveland and defeated the likes of Jeff Garcia, Kelly Holcomb, Charlie Fry, Derek Anderson, Colt McCoy, Seneca Wallace, Brandon Whedon, Jason Campbell, Johnny Manziel, Josh McCown, Cody Kessler, and most recently, Deshaun Kaiser. Kaiser, a second-round pick from Notre Dame, could of course win out the rest of this season's home games and surpass Ben Roethlisberger for wins in Cleveland come 2018. That is, of course, if he stays at the quarterback position for that long. I'm John Lund. For sports news, red like real news. Let's take a quick break to count the Browns quarterbacks. When we come back, we'll talk to an NFL writer about all the happenings from week one and some things to look out for down the road in week two. We'll be right back on the bridge keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to The Bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, what was your main takeaway from week one of the NFL season, and why? Well, the time has finally arrived. The return of the NFL season also brings with it the triumphant return of weight. Who? A segment dedicated to giving some lesser-known players or coaches their just due. And it didn't take long to find the first candidate for the 2017 season. In fact, we needn't look no further than the first game of the year. And it wasn't someone from the defending Super Bowl champions. Without further ado, the glorious return of, wait, who? Who? The National Football League is back, and while Week 1 lacked some overall excitement, opening night at least was able to provide some fireworks, when the defending Super Bowl champion New England Patriots hosted the Kansas City Chiefs. The game was heavily advertised, with Commissioner Roger Goodell set to make his return to Gillette Stadium, and with Dave Portnoy and Barstool Sports set to greet him with thousands of towels, bearing his likeness as a clown that he is. The game itself was far from predicted, as a five-time Super Bowl champion was outperformed by Alex Smith, and a running back making his NFL debut set a record for most yards ever in an inaugural performance. No, it wasn't a Heisman winner or candidate, 
but former Mid-Atlantic Conference star, Kareem Hunt. Wait, who? Kareem Hunt tore up Willoughby, Ohio while in high school, rushing for 2,685 yards and 44 touchdowns as a senior. That showing was good enough to get him to the University of Toledo, where Hunt was a true freshman in 2013. He scored 16 touchdowns as a sophomore despite missing three games, and was the MVP of the prestigious Godaddy Bowl in a win over Arkansas State, after rushing for 271 yards and five touchdowns, which tied an NCAA record with one Barry Sanders. Holy Toledo, indeed. Hunt was named first-team All-Mac as a senior in 2016, finishing the year with 1,475 rushing yards and 10 touchdowns. He was drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs in the third round of the 2017 NFL Draft, and the sixth running back to be selected. With Jamal Charles out of the picture and Spencer Ware down with a knee injury in the preseason, Hunt was named the starting running back in late August. His debut against the Pats started off with a bang, as Hunt fumbled the first carry of his career, after never losing a fumble while in college. Laughs were had, jokes were made, tee hee hee, but Hunt was not to be phased. He caught a three-yard touchdown from Alex I hate all of my wide receivers Smith, then followed with another receiving touchdown for 78 yards. He later added a rushing touchdown from four yards out, finishing the game with a total of 246 yards from scrimmage, 148 of which were on the ground. He also averaged 8.7 yards for his 17 carries which was more than Jamal Charles ever had in his career. The overall mark was the most ever in a debut performance, and put Hunt in the company of Marshall Falk and Bill Sims, as the only running backs to debut with more than 150 yards from scrimmage and three touchdowns. Hunt was later rewarded for his performance by making his debut on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He can also count his blessings that his accomplishments were not made as a member of the Pats, or else he would most likely be getting cut for having the nerve to make the SI cover. Hunt will certainly be the hunted for the remainder of the season, but Kansas City fans can at least have some early optimism, at least before Andy Reid mismanages the clock. Who can help make Alex Smith and Andy Reid's job easier? Kareem Hunt. That's who. Now to this week's guest, and Eric Edholm, an NFL writer for Pro Football Weekly and Fan Rag Sports and friend of the show. He joined us last year to chat about his writing career and break down the NFL draft, and you can check that out in episode 65 of The Bridge. Now Eric is back to help us break down week one of the NFL season and chat about some of the surprises and disappointments to start things off and some things to look out for in week two and the rest of the year. You can find Eric's writing at FanRagSports.com and ProFootballWeekly.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at Eric underscore Edholm. That's E-R-I-C underscore E-D-H-O-L-M. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Eric Edholm. He's an NFL writer for Pro Football Weekly and Fan Rag Sports and friend of the show. Eric, thanks for coming back on. How you been? Everything's good, man. It's uh, good to have one week under our belts, even though it was a bit of a strange week one, but yeah, good to get back in the flow of things. It was a strange week one. Some teams that we expected maybe not to do as well overperformed. Other teams maybe did not meet expectations at this point, but things usually even themselves out at some point when it comes to the National Football League. Before we get into that, I know you've made a couple changes in your writing career since we last spoke. Can you update things on your new roles with Pro Football Weekly and Fan Rag Sports? Yeah, I uh, I had worked before with PFW uh, for years, um, back when it was a, a weekly print publication. We had the website and the TV show and the radio show and all that. 
uh, they went out of business and sort of reformed a little bit. And I went to work for Yahoo Sports for uh, three, four years and then uh, had an offer to come back to kind of a new version of PFW and uh, some great owners with the Shaw Media Publishing. And uh, we do a lot of different things, got some different voices involved. So it's been kind of fun to, to rejoin those guys. And yeah, I do some, some weekly uh, sort of fixed columns for, for Fan Rag, looking at the league as a whole. And so they're, they're kind of different uh, roles a little bit, a little more news stuff with PFW and news breaking and reporting and a little more analysis and column stuff for uh, for fan rank. So it's been fun. It's a little different uh, approach this season, but I'm I'm getting my feet wet here. And you got to be in Green Bay for week one, which I'm sure is an incredible atmosphere, especially against the Seahawks. So nothing wrong with that. And we'll definitely get into that game, of course, as one of the more popular ones from week one. I guess we can start from the beginning and sort of work from there. We had a decent matchup on Thursday night to kick off the season with the defending Super Bowl champions hosting the Kansas City Chiefs. But it wasn't the five-time Super Bowl champion really doing his thing. He was outperformed by none other than Alex Smith, who had one of his only 300-yard performances of his career and was overshadowed again by Kareem Hunt, who came onto the scene in a huge way and had the best rookie yard from scrimmage game in NFL history. Is this team that we saw on Thursday one we should expect to see throughout the season? Was this maybe a flash in the pan game? How do you view the Kansas City Chiefs moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think there are going to be games where they don't come close to having that kind of offensive explosion. New England, you know, didn't have much of a pass rush in that game. They were kind of playing with a light box, and they may have underestimated uh, you know, Kareem Hunt. They, they probably spent a little too much time taking Travis Kelsey out of the game. Uh, Tyreek Hill got loose and you know, I mean Smith played well I don't want to make it just seem like it was a bunch of New England you know defensive breakdowns but um, I, I love the way he responded to the critics who were saying okay this is Patrick Mahomes job when's he going to get it Smith basically said well not anytime soon if, it, if it's up to me so I love the way he threw the ball he threw it with confidence threw well vertically that was something he hasn't always done um, so for a guy at this stage in his career to almost adapt, uh, and that was a one game situation, you know, to, to do things that we hadn't sort of readily seen him do is pretty impressive. I, I, I worry about the loss of Eric Berry. That's a big one. I think their overall depth leaves a little bit, uh, to be desired. You know, is there a, what if Hunt goes down? You know, what if Hill goes down? What if Kelsey goes down? There really aren't guys who replicate what they do. So they need some luck as far as health. And their offensive line played very well. But I worry about, you know, losing a key guy in week one. Does that kind of domino into, you know, a team that's not quite as good if they lose three or four other starters? I don't think the New England Patriots have to worry too much about the offense coming along. It seemed like Edelman not being there really hurt in week one when a big play might have needed to be made, which wasn't surprising to see. But what was surprising was their defense giving up, I believe, more than 500 yards, 42 points for the Chiefs. Is that a red flag when it comes to New England, something that we could keep an eye on as the weeks move forward is something that they really need to improve upon? Yeah, their their overall depth is a real worry. You know, you, you lose Rob Ninkovich to retirement. You lose Chris Long to free agency. They had all, I mean, it was amazing how they managed to lose, you know, Dominique Easley last May. They, they let him go with, with nothing in return. You know, they, they trade Chandler Jones um, and don't get a defensive player in return. You know, they, they moved on from Jamie Collins midseason. I mean, that was such a stunning move at the time. And the fact that they were able to kind of buoy themselves defensively and, and be the number one scoring defense last year is nothing short of incredible. So maybe they overachieved a little bit last year. And they were one of the healthiest teams in football. I think they had like four players on injured reserve. They just they stayed healthy. So when it came to Super Bowl time, you know, they were they were still a pretty much a full lot. This year, I think the lack of depth is starting to show a little bit. And they lose their top pick, Derek Rivers. He was supposed to help out up front. They still have some guys working in new roles. 
yeah, there was a big coverage breakdown on Hill's touchdown. Um, Devin McCourty didn't have a great game. There were, there were just other elements that I think surprised a few of us, but they're not going to give up 500-plus yards every week. They're not going to give up 42 points. They have a tough challenge Sunday against New Orleans, but I think in the long run they'll be okay. Bill Belichick's defenses typically have given up some yards. Where they've been great is, is forcing turnovers and being stout in the red zone. So if they can do those two things, I don't really care about the yards so much. I think they'll be fine as long as they can they can correct those errors. We've already mentioned Alex Smith and joining him as some of the other top quarterbacks in week one were none other than Carson Wentz and Jared Goff. And folks from a couple years ago have to be thrilled of those performances and hope that they continue. What did you see from them in this week one as far as improvements might be and what we might expect to see from them as the season goes on? Now, granted, I may have been watching that Eagles game uh, from the Lambeau Field press box. So maybe there was some, <laughs> some Green Bay in the air. But I thought I was watching a young Brett Favre, both good and bad. I thought I was watching like the 1993 Favre who, you know, still made his share of mistakes, still still made some head-scratching throws, you know, still did all those Favrean things, but maybe not at the exceptional level that we came to know a couple of years after that. So. I, w- I wrote about it this week. I said, Wentz kind of looks like a 93 Favre to me, both good and bad. And, and I think that's a – I'm not saying he's going to be Brett Favre. That makes no sense. He can't say that at this point in his, in his career. But I'm really high on him, and I think he's got a lot that should get people excited. I think he's still learning his new receivers. You know, he hit Nelson Aguilar. Aguilar has been one of the more impressive turnarounds. You know, he was, he was almost a lost cause a year ago. But he's catching the ball much better now, has a defined role in this offense. Alshon Jeffrey will come on. Zach Kurtz might be one of the better, you know, top five or six receiving tight ends in the league. The offensive line played great for the most part. I, some pressure, but still, I love that. Goff, though, was, was a little bit more shocking to me, a little more surprising how efficient they were. Maybe it's just that the Colts' defense is that bad. Maybe it's that they, they really are not good at right now at any position. I don't think there's a strength on that team that you can really get behind without Andrew Luck there. So perhaps that had something to do with it, but the offensive play design went from like, what did Todd Gurley call it? An eighth grade offense last year. It went from that under Jeff Fisher and the old coaching staff to a more sophisticated style receivers pressing down the field, tight ends going up the seam backs releasing into the flat and, and a more spread out version of what they did last year, putting more on his plate, but also giving him more options to throw to. Um, they can use five man protections now and not get him killed. That's a good thing. So Dolph threw with confidence. That's what we wanted to see. Don't know where they're going to be at the end of the season, but I, but I'm, but I'm appreciative of how much these guys look better now. And Goff did it in front of about 20 people and close family and friends. (laughs) And when the Chargers come back to L.A. in week two, I don't really expect to see any difference. Is this what we should expect as far as the Los Angeles teams are concerned as the season moves on to really see some low attendance numbers unless they can really put together some maybe historical seasons to bring people into the seats? So, so are you telling me that, that L.A., which went 20-plus plus years without an NFL team, with, with no real sort of, you know, uh, grassroots operation there, begging for the return, it was no, you know, I never heard anybody from L.A. saying, my goodness, we got to have a team. It, it, all of a sudden, now they're going to be able to, you know, field two teams in this town, one of whom plays in a soccer stadium right now. And I just, the whole thing has been so bizarre to me. And I think the Chargers are, are they're in a tough spot. You know, as sort of clearly that number two team, and as you said, the first team, the Rams, didn't exactly fill the stands on Sunday, despite all that initial excitement once they came. I mean, all oh, there were season ticket holders and this and that and requests filled and everything. Well, that excitement hasn't been borne out yet. I think some of it is, hey, let's see you do it for three or four games. Let's see you do it over the course of a season. So there is sort of that show me mentality, but is this town going to, going to, going to support two teams readily? I, I don't know. I I really don't. The chargers 
we're a very hyper local outfit in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Not that far out the road, but still feels like a team that that has lost its roots a little bit here. So just uh, it's going to be one of those things to watch. I do want to get out there for a game at that at that Charger Stadium. Now I have to see it. I want to be able to see an NFL game in a place that's smaller than a handful of Division Three football uh, stadiums. Eric, to be honest, I think most of the fans are already standing in line for the Kobe Bryant retirement jersey ceremony set for December 18th. I think they would rather be there than watch L.A. football, unfortunately. And it is something that if they win, hopefully people end up coming out. But it was not a great first showing, especially in a game where you had to think that they were going to beat the what have turned into the hapless Colts and what they've been able to unfortunately show on the football field, which we can get into as well. We did have two teams that have been historically poor and very bad, not be too bad in week one. One in the Jaguars, who are now over 500, I believe, in the first time for five or six seasons after beating the Texans. And the Browns, as they typically do against the Steelers, did not put together too bad of a performance. We're finally starting to see some of this younger talent really show itself. And I know the Jaguars seem to be going more on a running game route than they're relying on Blake Bortles, probably a better decision. And with the Browns having so many first-round draft picks over the past several years, it's nice that maybe they can start putting things together with a young quarterback. Should we see them improve a little bit as we've seen both the Jaguars and Browns be in years past? Yeah, I mean, I I think I wrote it maybe two, three weeks ago. I said, I, I don't think the Browns are one of the five worst teams in football, which you definitively could say the last few years. I mean, they were stuck in that worst, second worst, third worst, wherever you wanted to put them. They were not a good football team, and there was no doubt about it. Now, I mean, I don't think they're ready for prime time yet, but I do think they're going to surprise some people with a game or two that they win this year, and I think they'll win a handful more than other people do. You put them on a neutral field with the Jets, you know, in, in you know, Allegheny, Pennsylvania, somewhere midpoint between the two, and I think the Browns win pretty clearly. But they're still not a complete team. I, I, you know, they don't have a true go-to receiver at this point, short of Corey Coleman stepping up. They still are missing Miles Garrett. He's going to be out. We'll see how long it takes him to get back. The offensive line gave up some pressures. Deshaun Kaiser probably walked himself into a few sacks. There's still some cohesion stuff that needs to happen. They're going to be hyper-aggressive on both sides of the ball, and that's going to lead to some breakdowns too. Picks, turnovers. You know, big plays on defense, whatever. I mean, they're going to be a more fun brand of football, but they have work to do. The Jaguars are so fascinating because you said defense running the football, that's going to be their MO. Defense looks good. They were flying around on Sunday. They got an incredible amount of pressures. Uh, I mean, it seemed like every time either quarterback dropped back to pass, there was a guy in his his kitchen. So, yeah, I, I love that. I love the unit they put together, and if they can get guys like Miles Jack to make plays and, you know, get Yannick Ngakwe to get sacks and, and you know, you, you've got Malik Jackson, you know, you've got uh, Calais Campbell, you've got some real big, nasty dudes up front. That could be an exciting group. The problem is no Allen Robinson now. You know, Leonard Fournette has a history of ankle injuries. It just – it feels like it could fall apart offensively at any point. Getting to some of the later games from Sunday, you got to see one of the main ones in person in the Seattle Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers, and it wasn't a very pretty game, at least from watching on the couch. We might have expected this year to be the year that Seattle's offense figured things out in a sense. They were going to come ready to play. It was almost a feeling where they would get out early. Aaron Rodgers would have to make one of his comebacks and get Green Bay back in the game and we have a shootout in the fourth quarter and really the offenses weren't able to get started at all until the second half with the Packers benefiting from a Seattle turnover to really put the game away in a sense what stood out to me and what you wrote about as well was that the Seahawks offensive line as you said is a problem that is a real one and we saw it again this year They said that they would fix it, and they clearly have not, as Russell Wilson continues to run from his life. Should we get used to this sort of thing once again for the Seahawks, where the protection won't be there, and we'll just have to keep our fingers crossed Russell Wilson can figure it out? 
Yeah, I, unfortunately, I think it's it's that situation where they've got to work with who they have. It's not like the Houston Texans where Dwayne Brown's holding out and you'll get him back at some point and that'll that'll help, you know. Or the the Packers, they're going to get Brian Balaga back from injury and, you know, they'll, they'll be a little more stout up front, that sort of thing. Other groups where you say, okay, they're, they're, they're super young, they're going to come together. I mean, Seattle put out Riso Diombo at left tackle, a guy who they couldn't find a position for last year. You know, they, he was sort of the backup right guard. You put a short-armed, not-that-athletic guy at left tackle and ask him to block Nick Perry one-on-one, we got problems. Or I say, Jimmy Graham, help out with the chip that he completely whiffs. Or, you know, Chris Carson, seventh-round pick, you chip the guy. You know, it just doesn't feel like they have an idea what to do up front. You know, I, I thought that Mark Lewinsky had a terrible game. I thought that Luke Jokel got whipped badly on that turnover. You know, even Justin Britt, the center, pretty good player, uh, right? They gave him a big contract extension. He's sort of the rock up front. He didn't have his best game. He was on the ground a few times. They didn't get much push in the run game. They had one Russell Wilson scramble, one Carson run. You take those plays away, they had nothing. So, unfortunately, I, I mean, I just don't know what they're going to do. The only thing that I saw that moderately helped was going up tempo. The offensive line wasn't great then, but at least they weren't giving up sacks and crazy pressures. Maybe by going up tempo a little bit, it kind of settles those guys into more of a groove. You know, it simplifies things a little bit. It forces the defense to be a little more simple. You know, they can't make their calls as fast. They can't get the right personnel in. They can't overload and blitz and do all this exotic stuff. That might be the only kind of solution for them up front that I can see readily right now because, you know, the guys they have on their bench aren't better than the starters, and the starters aren't good. So that's a, that's a personnel and a talent problem. It could be something to do with that Seahawks offensive line, and it is only one game, but could this be a season where Aaron Rodgers might be able to trust his defense? Yeah, and we'll see. Obviously, they have a huge test against the Falcons, different kind of challenge than what Wilson. You know, they seem to have a formula for Wilson and the Seahawks. That's four straight games now they've kind of held him down. Last time we saw them try to slow down the Falcons, Julio Jones is still running a nine route. You know what I mean? I mean, he had he had four of their five longest plays in that game, and he was just – he was running free. The guy who was covering him at times, Ladarius Gunther, got released yesterday. So we know they've at least upgraded the personnel. You know, they, they've added some talent in the secondary. You know, they seem a little bit more stout up front. If Perry's healthy, if Clay Matthews is healthy, if Mike Daniels stays upright, they can have a pretty good little group. Do I think it's going to be an outstanding defense for this season? Probably not. They just have to be so much better on third downs. So that's, that's the key, I think. And, and huge test, you know, opening of Mercedes-Benz Stadium Sunday, uh, Sunday night. If they can, can slow down the Falcons a little bit, kind of like what the Bears did in week one to the Falcons, then I'm listening. Then I'm, then I'm starting to notice, hey, this is two diverse offenses that, that have been kind of slowed down a little bit and, and – Maybe the Packers have turned the corner a little. For the Sunday night game, there wasn't much to say negatively about the Cowboys, but the Giants really widened some eyes based on getting held to three points. The offense really never getting into a rhythm without Odell Beckham Jr. Was there something you saw from that game that stands out that they really need to take a look at to try and fix as the season moves forward so we don't see a performance like that too much more in 2017? Yeah, I, I was actually, when you called, I was actually uh, watching a little bit of the game. I didn't get to see it live because I was writing on deadline at the time, but uh saw a handful of plays. You know, and, and, and Dallas was was had its troubles closing drives, too. But there's no question that the Beckham effect is real, right? Until, you know, until he's back, it's hard to make a, a total assessment of what this team is. And any team losing its star receiver, we mentioned Edelman earlier, whoever else, I mean, it's going to have an effect. But it shouldn't be that dramatic, right? And the offensive line clearly is to blame in part. I mean, Eli Manning was throwing, you know, running for his life, having to throw from arm angles and things like that. There isn't an established run game to help him out. They were playing behind the sticks too much. So, you know, it, I. I want to reserve judgment a little bit until we see Beckham and then maybe even see him in, in prime form before we can truly say, but 
Yeah, it's a worry, you know, and I, I kind of had my concerns. I thought this might be more of a nine-win team or an eight-win team than, than the 11-win team we saw last year. Um, but I didn't know that the offensive line worries were going to be this serious. I also don't want to put too much onus on the first Monday night game's winning team in the Vikings who showed that their offensive line is an incredibly stout one. That's been a problem in the past, and they've seemed to have fixed it incredibly and look to have one of the better ones in the National Football League. Sam Bradford had a ton of time to show off what he's able to do if he has it. Dalvin Cook had a great game at the running back position, and though it is the Saints' defense, which we know has been a question mark for many years now, it seems, they did look very good in both the passing and running game, and it was at least good to see that they took advantage of those opportunities. Are the Vikings a team that might be able to surprise some people in the NFC this season, just based on what we were able to see from Monday night? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, they early last season they looked very good, and, and the fact that they were able to, you know, start out with that win streak 5-0, and you know, with Sam Bradford having just arrived and all that, it was clearly a lot on the defense, and they were kind of carrying the load. But it's nice to know that the offense can, can also pick things up, that, you know, end-of-the-half situation, they can take advantage of some, some bad clock management by the Saints, go down and score, you know, make some big plays. Stephon Diggs looks like a – kind of a young poor man, Antonio Brown a little bit. He's, he's been, you know, just been lighting it up in, in the preseason now. And, you know, heading in from last year, I felt like he could be a breakout star. And he's, you know, one game has showed that. Cook, I love the fact that he was sort of bottled up early. You know, he looked a little, a little frustrated, right? Like he thought he was going to hit a couple of doubles or home runs early in the game. He didn't. And then late he just poured it on. He was a closer. I mean, that's, that's pretty rare for a rookie to have that kind of, you know, that, that stick to and, and allow him to kind of burst out the way he did, especially late in the game. So, you know, with, with Thielen, with Rudolph, with Cook, with Bradford playing well, and, yeah, like you said, that offensive line taking big steps from last year, this could be a team to be reckoned with. I, I think they have some real good talent. I think they look like a playoff outfit. That's why I thought they could, could maybe challenge the Packers in the North, but – uh, at the worst, maybe a wild card team that that that, that enters and is kind of dangerous. You mentioned on Twitter during the second Monday night football game that the Chargers would somehow find an interesting way to lose, and of course they yeah. did, losing on a blocked field goal. Something that uh, your former colleague Frank Schaub actually wrote a great piece about in what went on in that timeout to sort of make that happen. And it's always amazing in the National Football League what goes on behind the scenes, what players are able to see. And, and we actually saw that a little bit from Tony Romo being in the booth this past weekend and just calling out plays during the Titans-Raiders game, even after audibles. Yeah. But hitting on the Broncos from that game, it was coming into the season maybe a question on how the defense would respond to losing T.J. Ward, and they really didn't seem to lose too much. Thankfully for them, the offense did show some signs of being a good one in the first couple quarters, but they weren't really able to close out the game, again relying on defense and special teams to get a win. Do you have a sense on where Denver might be, how good that defense is, if it's up to par with them, and if the offense could be a valuable one as we go on here? Yeah, I had a feeling that, you know, the coverage would still be really good. I mean, that secondary is really nice in the cornerback position especially. But, you know, when Darian Stewart went out of that game, the Chargers were able to make some plays, you know. And so, you know, his health, his staying healthy is important. You know, Ward was not a deep safety per se, but, you know, having him back there was a layer of protection and a, you know, a security blanket of sorts. So, yeah, I mean, you know, what worried me coming into the year was, hey, if, if you bottle up Von Miller, if you commit to, to blocking him, where's the pass rush going to come from? Because Shane Ray is out. They've had other injuries. But every man up front seemed to win their individual battles. And so they, they may be a little more stout at the point of attack than I was sort of realizing. So this, you know, this defense isn't going to be maybe the, the 2014 or, or 15 vintage form that they were a couple years ago, but it might be, you know, not too far off from that. And, you know, Simeon made some plays. The run game had some, some splash uh, performances, you know, a couple nice performances by the receivers too. I mean, Benny Fowler stepped up on his opportunities, and, you know, Emmanuel Sanders, some, some diving plays, and Demarius. So, yeah, that, 
you know, they're interesting. They're a good team. I think there was a little bit of panic in August about how good the Broncos really were. But, you know, we, we, we saw some elements that those first three and a half quarters that made us think that, hey, maybe, maybe they're end up being pretty good. Before a couple of hits on week two, is there a team or teams or even a player that stands out to you as the biggest surprise or the biggest disappointment from what we were able to see in week one so far? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say too much. Obviously, you, you kind of worry a little bit when a team like the Houston Texans goes out and looks absolutely abysmal. You know, I just – and defensively, they weren't very good either. You know, I mean, they were they were, they were were missing some plays out there as well. So, quick turnaround with a Thursday game, maybe a weaker division. Titans didn't look great in the opener after the, you know, first few series. So, it's a, that's a tough one to call right there. You know, is either team going to step up dramatically, I guess? And, you know, that, that's probably the biggest thing. And then the Jaguars, are they part of that equation on the positive side of you know, that, that rush and, and, and what they can do with, with Fournette if he's healthy? So that whole division, I guess, is just sort of a jumbled mess, and, and we're going to have to sort that thing out. Somebody's going to be hosting a playoff game. That's all we know. Titans look to be maybe the best, but I'm not ready to graduate them up to that that, that – top five AFC team just yet. I think they've got a lot more that they have to prove uh, at this point. Heading into week two, there's a lot of talk sometimes about what team has to make the most adjustments and you see what teams are really made of after they're able to get a game under their belt after week one, aside from the teams that obviously had their games moved from the hurricane. Is there a game coming up for week two or maybe a team in particular that you'll have a focus on just to see what both teams are able to do in that matchup or how they're able to respond maybe to not as good as a week one performance? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we mentioned two of those games with Patriots Saints. You know, I guess the, the Patriots rebound is maybe a, a little more uh, of interest, but um, you know, Falcons, Packers, obviously two teams that won that maybe did so in, in less than oppressive fashion. But then the Steelers too. I mean, they're they're at home. They've got a Vikings team that, as we said, looked very good. Can the Steelers step up? Is Le'Veon Bell going to be in prime form for this one? He didn't appear to be uh, in the opener, so that's a, that's a quick turnaround for them and a, and a tough assignment as well. So, yeah, there are a few games that have some real intrigue to them, but I, I don't know what to make uh, of of some of these units tonight, they look good in week one. We said, boy, is this a new, a new leaf or is it just one week is an aberration. The Detroit lions fall into that, you know? So the lions giants game might be the perfect example of what do we know about these teams? I mean, what do, what do we really know about either team? Both made the playoffs last year. Both seem to be one of those teams that we had a little bit of doubt about that Monday night game could end up being pretty big for both. A little bit bigger of a picture, I did hear some rumblings on social media or sports radio shows about week one in general, and that maybe the interest wasn't as high as it has been in years past. And we've seen this with the ratings here and there where, I mean, with ratings, you can really just make what you want the main message to be happen if you play with the numbers enough. But the week one matchups, just from having some of these teams that have been historically bad do well, some of the good teams that we've seen throughout the years not do as well, week one didn't leave the best taste in people's mouths, perhaps, until maybe the later Sunday games or what they could take away from Monday. The product overall, have you gotten a sense on anything shifting or anything changing just as far as the maybe excitement factor is concerned for the National Football League or if maybe they should be worried about the viewership as well? Well, people don't go into games worried about offensive line play until it happens. You know, I mean, nobody's, you know, we talk about big matchups and stuff. We may discuss units and say, oh, their D line's going to get that get after it, whatever. But, you know, I think fans go into games thinking about quarterbacks and running backs, the fantasy skill guys, and all that. And then they're watching this game, and their quarterback is running for his life, or the running back is getting hit two yards in the backfield. So I do think the offensive line play has deteriorated to a point for certain teams to where the product looks bad. Look how many teams failed to get 300 yards total of offense last year, last week. It was like 14 teams or something. It was, it was an absurd number. You know, we, we had some, some breakout guys like Wentz and Goff, but we also had some quarterbacks who played very poorly. And we had some – and part of it is to blame. We had two quarterbacks benched uh, in week one. I mean, that's 
you know, that, that leads to the lack of, of quality play discussion we have. So, yeah, I, I do think offensive line play is a big reason why some of this product doesn't look as, as crisp as it used to. I think that will really get interesting when we see a major shift happen when Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, those main quarterbacks that we've seen in this league seemingly forever end up retiring and a new line of quarterbacks has to ascend. Depending on how quickly that takes to happen, people might also voice their displeasure upon that when there's not the big name quarterbacks in the league for a couple of years that they're used to seeing. So that's something to also check out down the road as well for us in sports media i'll leave you with you've done a lot of tv and video spots in the past for the past several years do you have any tips for young broadcasters to not end up as the next sergio dip <laughs> i give sergio a lot of credit and for those who don't know who that is and you, i'm sure everybody does at this point he was a you know english is a second language uh sideline reporter for the money nighter and, and he obviously got sort of caught up in the moment a little bit, struggled with his words and his uh, over-exuberance. But, you know, I, I give him a lot of credit for going out there. It takes some bravery, and, and he had fun with it. Uh, so I love the way he handled it. Uh, if I had to go on a, a Spanish-speaking station right now, I mean, I'd be in big trouble. So I, I, I tip my hat to, to his bravery. I mean, never be afraid to say anything, you know. Never be afraid to, to voice your opinion and to have fun with it, to show some excitement. So from that perspective, God bless him. He did a great job. He'll get, you know, he'll get opportunities to doing other things down the road. So, yeah, it's, it's a tough assignment for him. And uh, I know a lot of people have fun with that. Always a great learning curve to have that happen to you in your first experience. So you can only go up from there, thankfully for him. And it did provide us uh, some excitement to go along with, say, Rex Ryan blubbering along through the game. Eric, thanks again for dropping by and offering your insight. Always look forward to talking to you about the National Football League and getting a better idea of what we're able to see in week one and week two. Continued success with all the writing that you're up to now. I will attach all of that in my show notes so people can find out where you are now and keep having fun with it. Keep uh, grinding because I know that never ends. And again, thanks again for dropping by. It was great catching up with you. All right, man. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Eric for jumping on the show. We'll now move to another segment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print, and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. And since Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins here. And don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so. Along with Joe's analogy of the film compared to the sports world at the end. Though the film It had the biggest opening weekend in horror movie history and one of the biggest in R-rated movie history and a film I actually went out to see, Joe is terrified to see it. So hammer the comments and we'll see if some online peer pressure can change that for content purposes of the bridge. This week, Joe will break down the Netflix film Death Note, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as the story of Light Turner, a bright student who stumbles across a mystical notebook that has the power to kill any person whose name he writes in it. Light then decides to launch a secret crusade to rid the streets of criminals, and soon the student-turned-vigilante finds himself pursued by a famous detective known only by the alias L. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupof-joe.com. Again, that's cup of dash or hyphen or whatever you'd call it, joe.com. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Based on the popular anime series, Death Note hit Netflix as an original movie. Director Adam Wingard was tasked with Americanizing the Japanese property, 
not the first time this has been tried, and it usually doesn't work out. Earlier this year, Ghost in the Shell with Scarlett Johansson tried the same thing with diminishing returns. The quality lacked, the film ultimately bored, and the domestic box office suffered. Could Death Note be any different? Let's go to the tape. Now, I don't know anything about the series. I've never watched an episode. This review will be strictly based on the movie. I know fans of the series don't seem to like this, but again, I can't speak to that. That being said, right off the bat, this movie has issues. The first being the pacing. Although understandable when faced with the task of turning a series into a feature-length film, the fact still remains that the movie moves way too fast. Although sometimes I enjoy when a film jumps right into the action, some call for it. Some don't. For instance, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk shows us war and doesn't develop characters. It instead gives us a quick text scroll to let us know where the war is at when the film begins. Hence, when the first gunshot goes off in the first few minutes, we are not missing anything. For those unfamiliar with the source material, things need to be hashed out. When the Death Note drops from the sky about a minute into the film, and then ten minutes later Light Turner is killing people at a rapid rate, you're left looking for a timeout and an opportunity to regroup after the opposing team went on a 15 to nothing run. Now, if you haven't seen this movie or don't know anything about the series, did that make much sense? Are you asking yourself questions? You should be, because there's a lot we need to learn about our main character to start. Our hero, or anti-hero in this case, is Light Turner, played by Nat Wolf. A notebook falls from the sky and Turner picks it up. This book has the ability to kill people as long as the person who writes in it knows the name and is picturing the face of the person he or she would like to kill in his or her mind. He or she can also say how he or she wants the victim to die as well as influence the victim's actions for two days until he or she finally dies. And trust me, those are just a few. The rules are endless. So, as I said, the killing starts rapidly. Although he kills for good, Light is somehow okay with killing hundreds of people without so much as blinking an eye. He's also apparently very smart. While he is shown doing other students' quizzes early in the film, Light doesn't really act intelligently. I don't believe his supposedly high IQ. It's not just the pacing, it has something to do with the performance of Wolf, but I don't blame him because I've seen him excel in other movies. I blame the direction. I realize that Light is an anti-hero, but anti-heroes should have something about them that makes you like their characters. I don't find Light likable, and I just don't buy into his character. Also, the end is completely convoluted. So this movie is a mess on the level of strong filmmaking. But what kind of movie were they trying to make here? I don't think it was as highbrow as the series intends it to be. I think Wingard intends to make a quick-hitting film for your entertainment, and in that regard, the film succeeds. It has some Final Destination-type kills, a fun performance we come to expect from the voice of Willem Dafoe, and a touch of teen drama that'll make you wish they took the cast of Riverdale and threw them into the leading roles. So I had a good time. One thing I really enjoyed with Death Note was the performance of Lakeith Stanfield, who plays L, the greatest detective in the world who protects his true identity. From his voice to his mannerisms, Stanfield commands the scene every time he's on screen. I like the character design, the movie kicks into gear when he is introduced, and the most engaging scenes involve him. Again, his character could have been handled better with more time to develop. I love the way his emotion teeters throughout the film, but why is he so emotional when he is shown as stoic at the beginning of the film? What is his relationship with his right-hand man? Why does he constantly have candy with him? Why does he not sleep for long stretches? What makes him a great detective? I don't think all of these questions need to be answered, but the fact that none of them were answered is a bit alarming. The bottom line, Death Note has problems that will annoy those devoted to the anime series, including pacing and the way Light Turner was handled. But to those who have not seen the series, or step back and look at Death Note as a standalone film, there's fun to be had. Lakeith Stanfield and Willem Dafoe give strong performances, and everything else, while not great by any stretch, is by no means horrible. You can watch it, enjoy it, and not feel bad about it, no matter how much fans of the series try to make that happen. I'll rank Death Note as Johnny Manziel. He was never going to pan out as a viable starting quarterback in the NFL and had off-field issues, but when the six-footer ran for his life in the backfield to find time to deliver a sensational touchdown pass, 
you can't help but be entertained. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please. We'll close out the show with America's fastest growing sports segment called Good Try, Good Effort. Here we'll briefly mention some of the instances from throughout the week when a team or a player or coach meant well but didn't quite meet those expectations. Just one this week, certainly the most worthy of the lot. Good try, good effort, Sergio Dip. It was a historic night for the second game of Monday Night Football when the Denver Broncos hosted the Los Angeles Chargers on ESPN. As Beth Moens became the first woman to call a Monday Night Football game and the first to do so in general in 30 years. But rather than that serve as one of the biggest moments from the game or Rex Ryan bumbling through his first game in the booth as the color commentator and making jokes about his foot fetish, we were instead afforded the most awkward, agonizing, and amazing moments in broadcasting history. Coming back from a break, Moens gave way to Sergio Dip, who was also making his Monday Night Football debut as a sideline reporter. The 29-year-old Dip, who primarily works for ESPN Deportes and has been with the four-letter network since 2013, was seemingly used in a way for ESPN to promote its other broadcast of the game, which was also being shown on ESPN2 in Spanish. Not a terrible thought, but probably not the best idea to throw a reporter who speaks English as a second language into one of broadcasting's biggest stages in one of the loudest stadiums in the NFL. The bright lights were turned on, and Sergio Dip rumbled, bumbled, and stumbled his way into becoming an internet sensation. Here's Sergio Dip. Beth. Coach, it's a pleasure to be with you guys here on the field from up close, just watching Coach Vance Joseph from here. You watch him now on the screen. This diversity in his background is helping him a lot tonight. Quarterback at Colorado, defensive back in the NFL, and here he is having the time of his life this night making his head coaching debut. Now I that unfortunately was the last we heard from Sergio for the rest of the game, though he did find some humor with the moment and poke fun of himself on Twitter, sending out a picture of Googling how to deal with fame. Social media was sent into a tizzy with some also poking fun and others sticking up for his blunder as well. ESPN dropped the ball, though, as a second appearance of Sergio would have been must-see television, even if it was for him to simply just say, And boom goes the dynamite. But while it was all fun and games that night, things took a weird turn when Sergio, still wearing the same clothes, tweeted out a video in response to his broadcast at 5 a.m. local time, talking about the September 11th terror attacks, growing up as a minority in America before then talking about his actual appearance on ESPN. It was quite a turn from fun to serious, and an apology really wasn't warranted since the context to what he was actually trying to say in the sideline report wasn't that bad. Overall, many things from the night could have been handled much better than they were, but that still does not take away from the gold provided by Sergio Dip, a name that will long live in broadcasting history.
going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and our previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, and the TuneIn app on Wednesdays by searching for Sports Radio America. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. 